I'm not sure if all of you know this, but every Tuesday night, uh, we have a little uh, staff meeting, and we debrief the service. We, we go through Sunday service. We talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. I come up a lot in that third part. And um, uh, we just talk about things that, that don't go right in the service, things that we want to do differently, things we want to make the service somehow uh, uh, better and more meaningful for you. And uh, Derek said a very profound thing on Tuesday. He said, you know, Michael, last week you got right into your sermon, and you didn't tell a joke, and I really missed it. Just wanted you to hear that. So on behalf of Derek, you know, Gandhi (laughs) walked barefoot everywhere he went. He ate very little and he often uh, fasted, which made him very, very thin. And because of the way that he ate and and fasted, he had very bad breath. Thus, he is often uh, thought of being the super calloused, fragile mystic plagued with halitosis. (laughs) Oh, you don't like that? You don't like that? What do you call an Amish man with his hand in a horse's mouth? A mechanic. Okay. Well, I'm sure that this Tuesday, Derek will say, I changed my mind. Well, I'm glad you're with us this morning. We are going to complete, I knew you never thought it would come to this, but today we are finally going to come to an end of the book of Acts. We started this journey 18 months ago, and we have been, uh, uh, we took a few breaks from the book of Acts, but we have uh, gone through the entire book Uh, preaching God's word and seeing all the wonderful things. I hope it's been enlightening to you. I hope it's been challenging at times. Uh, I hope that it's been encouraging also at times. Uh, But there's really a great uh, many wonderful things uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, If you saw my post on the city this week, which is our church's um, uh, social network thing, uh, I'm going to cover both chapters 27 and 28 today. Uh, And I'm going to review some of the big ticket items that we saw in the book of Acts, okay? Uh, So I hope you got a chance to read these two chapters, because I won't be covering all of the verses in today's sermon like I usually do. Uh, There's just a lot of, you know, Paul went here and there and here and there and here and there, and so we don't need to go through all that. But I want you to see uh, some of the most important parts here. But if you haven't read chapters 27 and 28, I want to encourage you to do that on your own and see all the detail that's in there. In chapter 27, we see that since Paul has appealed his case to Caesar in Rome, he obviously uh, was was arrested, he has to be taken by ship to Italy. Now, in what otherwise would just be kind of a play-by-play of his journey, we see that he encouraged these men not to take this journey for fear of bad weather. He was telling them, don't do this, don't do this, but they didn't listen to him, of course. And uh, in the early part of the chapter, it tells a story of how they were almost shipwrecked, several times and began throwing over the cargo and everything that they could basically throw overboard uh, to not capsize. So they're now in fear of their lives and almost assuredly going to wreck the ship and probably perish in the midst of all that. But Paul uh, speaks to them in verses 21 through 26. We're going to pick it up there in Acts chapter 27, verses 21 through 26, and here's what it says. So since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold... God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told 
but we must run aground on some island. And so we see here in this first point uh, in chapter 27, Paul is shipwrecked with the entire crew on the way to Rome. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I've been on a few cruises and on a few uh, sailing vessels. If any man came to me and said, hey, I want you to know the ship is going down, but we're all going to survive. I don't know that I would trust that too much. Uh, I would not really like to hear that kind of thing, uh, but that's what's going to happen here. And by the way, now you can add shipwrecked to Paul's vast resume of challenges in following Jesus and sharing the gospel. As soon as he's shipwrecked, he's not only been shipwrecked, he's been beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead. He's been whipped with 39 lashes five different times. He's been imprisoned at least three times. Snake bit, you name it, he's had it. I mean, just about every possible way uh, that you could go through difficult uh, situations, not to mention the fact that in practically every city he goes into, they plot to kill him. Now, now I have been in, in situations before where I've per- been persecuted, where people have made fun of me because I love Jesus, where people have talked behind my back, and I can hear the whispers because I love Jesus. Not once have I been beaten with rods. Not once have I been uh, put into prison. Not once have I ever sustained these kind of things. Uh, But I just want you to see here that Paul has really been through it all. He's really been through it all when it comes uh, to, to, to proclaiming the gospel and following Jesus. Finally, uh, they're able to procure another ship. And in chapter 28, we see that Paul reaches Rome. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. I'm sure you're all quite surprised. Because that's what he always does. That's what he always does. Of course, he's still under house arrest by the Romans because of the accusations of the Jewish leaders. After he's in Rome three days, he calls for the Jewish leaders to come to him. So here's the picture. They finally get Paul while he's still under arrest. They finally get him to Rome. He is guarded, so he's in a house where people can come and go and they can see him, but he cannot leave. There's a guard there. He's under house arrest. Uh, he can't do what he pleases, but others can come and see him. So it's not you know, like being in a prison, but he can't really uh, go anywhere. And, and, and he wants to talk to the Jewish leaders uh, there in Rome. So he calls for all of them to come to him. He says, hey, guys, come, and, and I want to talk to you about something. I want to talk to you. Come talk to me. And they, they kind of know who he is. Uh, but they also know that, that the accusations that have been uh, uh, charged against him really have no foundation. Uh, And so let's see what happens in Acts chapter 28, verses 23 through 31. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest They should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. 
they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we see here that Paul invites them all to come and he tries to persuade them. You know, I know sometimes we, we try to encourage you to share the gospel with people, to try and share your testimony with people. We've seen that Paul does that over and over and over uh, as he goes from city to city. He hardly ever gets into a deep theological discussion or debate. He shares what has happened to him. He shares just the gospel with people and then tries to convince them that the gospel is true. The gospel being that we are all sinners, that we can't do anything about our sin on our own. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross to pay for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave to prove he was the Savior of the world. And that by putting our faith and trust in what he did on the cross to pay for our sins and giving our lives to him, we can have eternal life and have our sins forgiven. That's what Paul preached. It says that some received it and some did not, like usual. And like usual... Paul decided that since some of you won't listen, I'll go and share it with the Gentiles who will listen and who will turn and give their lives to Jesus. Now, that's the very end of the book of Acts. That's not a very great ending, is it? I mean, as we've been going through the book of Acts, I thought, wow, so many great stories in here, so many wonderful miracles, so many incredible things that can happen. This thing's going to end like on a high note. It's going to be awesome. And it's probably one of the worst endings to a book that I've ever seen. I don't mean to be criticizing God. <laughs> but, but, but here's why, folks. Here's why. There's no ending in the book of Acts because it's still being written. The book of Acts is still being written today in local churches all over the world. There's no end to it because it's continuing on. What these men started, what the apostles and the early disciples and what Paul started is still happening. We're going to see in the first point we're going to look at here in just a minute that the ministry of Jesus Christ himself is still going on through the local church. And so there is no ending. Oh, there will be an ending. We sang about it this morning. There will be an ending when we stand face to face with him and this world is over. There will be an ending, but it hasn't happened yet. And so the book of Acts is continuing on. I think if, if God would have put a big exclamation point on the, on the end of the book of Acts, we might have thought, well, there it is. We can look at it. We can read it. We can maybe learn from it, but it's all done. It's not all done. It's still happening. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. So what happens to Paul? I mean, it kind of just leaves us hanging with what happens to Paul, right? Well, we don't really know a lot about what happens to Paul from the scriptures. We know that he continues to write to churches while he's in prison. We know that he, well, he, he does eventually preach uh, and, and share the gospel with Caesar because an angel earlier in the book of, of Acts here prophesied that he would. Even though we have no biblical account of that, we know that God is not a liar, and so that takes place sometime, but there's no biblical record of it. From letters that Paul writes, and also from, uh, partly from tradition, we know that Paul stayed under house arrest until his death there in Rome. It's commonly believed that Paul was decapitated by Emperor Nero 
while still in prison between 64 and 68 AD. And we think it's somewhere in there because the great fire, uh, uh, Rome burned in, in 64 AD, and, and we know that it, he was still alive then. And then uh, uh, 68 AD, uh, Nero's reign ended. So it had to come somewhere in between there. Okay, but there's no biblical confirmation that exists on what exactly happened to Paul. But I do want us to see, while we may not know exactly how, when, and where he died, we do get a little glimpse into his thinking right before his demise. And I want us to look at that for just a minute. I want you to know that things ended well for Paul. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is, these are his words. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's saying his goodbyes. He's saying the time is now at hand. And he mentions three things there that I think we should make note of. He says, listen, I have fought the good fight. He says, listen, I have fought well. I have fought well. I have fought with everything in me. And listen, when you look at Paul's resume that we talked about, he has fought well. He has fought through a lot. He has gone through about, except for Jesus himself, he's probably gone through just about as much as any man has ever gone through. He has fought the good fight. He's finished the race. And what that phrase means is he's ready to cross the finish line. If you're watching the Olympics, it's, it's like that in a race, there's that ribbon across there, and somebody's reaching out, and, and they're going to break the, the, the little uh, tape there. They're going to break the ribbon. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm finishing it. I'm, I'm crossing the finish line. I'm breaking the finish line. And he's saying, I kept the faith. I stayed true to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the very end. Folks, if we could say those three things on our deathbed, we would have lived a good life. We would have lived a good life. Listen, when I was 25, I thought natural death was a million years away. And, and I, want you to, I don't want you to think I've got like one foot in the grave or anything like that. But as I get older and I just get a better, you know, I'm, I'm 54 years old. I'm, I'm way past halftime. You know, the band is off the field. We're, we're deep into the third quarter here of this game. And, and I want to be able to say, when I get to the end, I want to be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have fought my guts out for the gospel. I am finishing the race. I am crossing the finish line well, and I have kept the faith. Man, I, I know we want people to say wonderful things about us when we die. I know that we want people to say, wow, he was a good father, he was a good grandfather, she was a good mother, she was good, she, you know, they loved us, all, all those kind of things. That, those are great. Nothing wrong with any of that. But I hope that someday people step up to my casket and say, Michael fought the good fight. Man, he finished the race strong. It's not just enough to start the race strong. You've got to finish strong. He finished strong. And throughout the whole thing, he kept the faith. Man, folks, if, if, if you would be able to say that about me, I would have lived a good life, and the same for you. Paul lived a good life. 
He went through incredible challenges, persecution, but he lived a great life because he stayed true to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we should take a lesson from Paul. Now, I want to uh, switch gears just a little bit. We saw so many wonderful, uh, uh, great principles in the book of Acts. I wanted to review 10 of the big ones for you. Now, don't come up to me after the sermon and say, oh, you should have done this one. Oh, you should have done... Listen, I started out with a list of 38. And I thought, unless we provide dinner for everybody, uh, I'm going to have to pare it down to 10. So I know I left out 28 really big, important things. Okay? I got that. Uh, send me a list if you want to. They're probably matches my list. But anyway, I want us to talk about 10 really big, important things that I hope you won't forget about the book of Acts. I hope uh, that they will just be seared into your brain as we continue to serve the Lord together. And the first one is this. The church is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ on the earth. I mentioned it earlier. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, the book of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which implies that I'm going to write this book now on everything Jesus is continuing to do and teach. But wait a minute. Before we even finish chapter 1, Jesus is off the scene. Jesus is resurrected and, and, and he ascends to the Father, to heaven. He's not even around anymore. How in the world does Jesus' ministry continue on the earth when he's gone? Through the local church. Folks, we are the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to this world. We've got to get that. We are, we are the ministers of reconciliation to this world. Oh, we're not the Savior. We're not Jesus. I'm not saying that. But for some reason, in his infinite wisdom, he's chosen to use people like you and me to be his hands and feet to those who need to hear about him. We are the continuation of the ministry of Jesus himself on this planet. We cannot forget that. We cannot get that uh, somehow messed up in our heads. This local church, along with other Bible-believing local churches all over the world, are the continuation of Jesus' ministry to a world that is getting darker and needs to see him and, 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 and know him more than ever. Let's not forget that what we're doing here is not some uh, a, a club. It's not some social club. It's not where you come and, and visit with your friends. Well, we do, but that's not the purpose. Uh, you don't come because uh, you're an insurance agent and you feel like you can make some contacts here. Oh, you probably could, but that's not the purpose. Okay? Uh, we don't come here just to be nice people, although we hope we are. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to come here together uh, so that we can uh, collectively be the expression of Jesus to Parkville and to Kansas City and to Missouri and to the rest of the world with every other Bible-believing church on the planet. And so let's not forget this principle. Number two, we saw that individual believers are filled with the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8 that we saw was the, uh, really the key verse of the entire book of Acts. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Now he meant what he said there, folks. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When we look back at number one and we say, wait a minute, we have to be the expression of Jesus to the entire world? That's a pretty daunting task. How in the world are, are we going to do that? Well, 
Jesus said, I'm going to help you do it. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and he's going to indwell you. He's going to actually come and live inside every single believer and possess you so that you will have the power to be like Jesus, to do like Jesus, to be, at times, think like Jesus and, and have him leading you. Okay, Folks, that's key. That's really key to this whole process. Without that, we would just be uh, trying our very best and failing miserably. And by the way, this is different than we saw in the, whole, in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, if you think about a spirit either oppressing you from the outside or possessing you from the inside, we see a great deal in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit directing uh, the nation of Israel. We see the Holy Spirit directing individuals, mostly Mostly, and God can do whatever he wants to do, but mostly we saw during that time that he oppressed from the outside. He directed things. It's different in the New Testament. He doesn't, he doesn't somehow influence us from the outside. He comes and possesses us. We have a spiritual possession that the Spirit of God actually lives in us, folks. That's a big deal. And that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples. We see that happening throughout the rest of the New Testament. Anytime a person gives their life to Jesus, turns from their sin, by faith accepts Christ. Number three. The gospel will spread through the witness of the apostles and other disciples in concentric circles. In the rest of that uh, verse, Acts 1.8, we see not only that Jesus gives us the power to do it, but he also shares with us the strategy. He says, you will be my witnesses. He doesn't ask. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then clear to the end of the earth. That was uh, the, the, the strategy of God himself to spread the gospel in these concentric circles. What did we see? We saw that the church was just having such a good time in Jerusalem. They were all sitting around singing kumbaya, loving one another, you know, doing the Lord's Supper, just loving each other and having such a great time together. They all just kind of did the holy huddle thing in Jerusalem. But remember, Jesus didn't ask him to do the strategy. He told them they were going to do the strategy. And so what did he allow happen? He allowed persecution to come. And, and all of the Christians in Jerusalem, not the apostles, they stayed. But the rest of the disciples, they were all scattered. And guess where they were scattered? Judea and Samaria. Just like Jesus said. He said, hey, you don't want to do my strategy? I'll help you do my strategy. And there they went. There they went. We see that the gospel spread that way. And then through uh, uh, Paul's ministry, we saw that really the gospel spread to the entire known world at the time. And, and if you look at how it has continued today, uh, almost everywhere in the world the gospel has, is being proclaimed. Not quite everywhere yet, but almost everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. Number four, we saw that church offices are established by deacon servants first being chosen in the church and leadership passed from apostles to elders. The church is being set up. The church is being uh, organized in the way that it will uh, continue on. We saw in Acts chapter 6 that there arose this uh, uh, argument that some widows were getting fed and some widows were not getting fed. And, and, and they brought this to the apostles and said, here's a problem, guys, you've got to fix this. They said, sorry, we're not going to fix it. We have something more important to do. More important than, than making sure widows get food? Yes, we have to spend our time focusing on prayer and the ministry of the word. But we want to make sure it gets done. 
So we're going to ask you uh, to nominate some men from, uh, from amongst you that we will approve, which they did. And these seven men took care of those widows. And they took care of them really well because we never see this issue ever come up again. And so these were the first deacons in Acts chapter 6 that were serving the body of the church. Every, New Testament, uh, every local New Testament church should have deacons serving the body of Christ. Now there's been in the last two or three weeks, there have been some huge examples of deacons and men in our church serving people in our church. Things that are way out of the, the norm and they just step up and take care of things. God has blessed us with good men in this church. We also see throughout the entire book of Acts, we don't have time to, to look at all of the, the passages right now, uh, but if we look at the book of Acts, if you look at the two words apostles and elders, what you'll see is early on in the book of Acts, uh, the apostles were making decisions for the church. Then it goes through a period of time where it talks about the apostles and elders. The apostles and elders always mentions both of them together. The apostles and elders got together in the Jerusalem council, which we'll talk about in a minute. It was the apostles and elders that made decisions. Then you see later in the book of Acts, while the apostles are kind of going off the scene, uh, elders are being appointed in every local church to continue leading uh, uh, the, the bodies, the local bodies of Christ as elders. The apostles, those who were set apart by Jesus to be his representatives to the world, they were dying off. But elders were springing up in every local church fact, we see that Paul, in his uh, missionary journeys, in his second and third missionary journeys, he went back to some of the cities he went to the first time, and part of the reason was because he could come back and now over some, some churches, which were elders. Then we see Paul's miraculous conversion. In Acts chapter 9, we, we view Paul's conversion as an incredible miracle, right? I mean, it's incredible, he, he's still persecuting the church. He's going to Damascus. He's got a list of names. He's going to find them. He's going to imprison them. He's going to hopefully kill a few of them just to, for good measure. And he's going to really put it to them. And Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? And, and we see uh, through that, that interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus that Saul gives his life to Jesus. He decides to follow him. And we see that conversion. It's a miraculous thing. And then Paul turns around. This incredible transformation that happens in his life. It's an incredible miracle. The guy who was the worst persecutor becomes the guy who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He becomes perhaps the greatest missionary that's ever lived. He's probably started more churches than anyone ever. We see this incredible transformation that happens at his conversion. But let me ask you a question. Aren't, aren't all conversions miracles? I mean, I, I, my, guess is, my guess is that probably none of you uh, uh, received Christ uh, going to persecute a few Christians and Jesus appeared to you in a bright light and spoke to you. I'm, I'm guessing that most of you did not go through something like that. But let me tell you something. We need to be in awe of God's incredible transformation power in the lives of people sitting next to us. Listen, when somebody comes through those doors and, and they don't have any hope and they don't have any faith and they're looking for answers to life because their life is a wreck or a mess, they don't know where they're going when they die. 
their relationships are a mess. And they're looking for something, and we introduce them to Jesus, and their lives are transformed. They, they, over a period of time, after they give their life to Jesus, all of a sudden they realize their life has purpose and meaning. They have hope for the future. They know where they're going when they die. Their lives are not perfect, but they are way more ordered than they would have been or than they were. Folks, that's a miracle too. Well, let's not, let's not look at those things like it's just, it's just yeah, something happened. Those are big deals. The Bible says when a person turns to Christ that the angels have a party in heaven. We ought to at least be okay with I mean, We ought to at least be happy about that. Right? So we see Paul's miraculous conversion, and we should be in awe of that. But folks, let's continue to be in awe of God's working right in our midst because there are people in this very room who in the last, sometime in the last 10 years, I've seen your lives changed. <laughs> Man, whew, a couple of you caught me off guard right there. I see some of you and how much your life has changed sometime in the last 10 years of this church's lifespan. And it's an incredible thing. Let's not ever get over that, folks. Let's not ever get over that, okay? We see in, uh, in uh, Acts 11 that the disciples are first called Christians at Antioch. Now, you might think this is kind of a footnote. What's the big deal? Now they're going to call us Christians. Instead of saying, oh, those are people that are following the way, now we're going to call them Christians. What's the big deal? Here's why it's a big deal. Because... What really happened there was people saw them and say, wow, look at those little Christs. Now, that might sound like, you know, somebody's cursing or something like that. But basically, it's the same thing as like saying, seeing a kid and going, man, you look just like your daddy. You, man, you're the spitting image of your mom. When a baby is born and we look at their picture and we go, well, look at their mom's picture as a baby. They're, man, they're like the spitting image. They look exactly the same. That's what happened here. They looked at them and said, those people are so much like Jesus. They're like little Jesuses. They're like little Christs. Look at them. My prayer is that people will look at Fellowship of Grace and say, those people up there, those people over there behind Quick Trip, uh, you know, those people over there behind Quick Trip, they, man, they, they just look like Jesus. They love each other like Jesus did. They take care of one another like Jesus did. They talk like Jesus talked. They walk like Jesus walked. They do the things Jesus did. I pray to God, literally, that people will see that in us. When people call us Christians, it's not just the name of our faith. Hopefully, what they're saying is, you guys look so much like Christ, I don't know what else to call you. You look just like your daddy. We saw also that the Jerusalem Council confirms that Gentile believers do not have to become Jewish. And we're turning to Christ, we're saying, hey, listen, uh, it's okay that these Gentiles are, are being Christ followers too, but they have to be Jews first, they have to be circumcised, they have to follow the dietary laws, they have to do all the things that we do, they have to be Jewish, because really Christianity is Judaism on steroids, they got to be a part of this, As we, they got to they follow this way. And we saw, folks, that that's not what happened at all. As the apostles got together, as the apostles and elders got together and said, we need to make a decision on this, we need to be led by God, they had several conversations. We saw them right there. 
And then they made a decision. And they said, listen, believers in Jesus do not have to follow the Old Testament law. They do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to follow the dietary laws. They do not have to become Jews, in essence, to be believers in Jesus. It also broke the barrier between Jewish believers and Christian believers. Folks, that applies not only to Jews and Christians, which was, which was uh, deep in their culture, but it applies to us in our culture in the sense that whoever comes through those doors and confesses faith in Jesus Christ, they can be a part of our family. I don't care what their financial situation is. I don't care what their background is. I don't care where they were raised. I don't care what their, their race is. I don't care uh, what, where they were born. I don't care about any of that, and you shouldn't either. If they come through those doors and they say, I profess faith in Jesus too, I want to be part of this family, they're in. They're in. And I think the Jerusalem Council really helped us to see that Christ really transforms every barrier and brings people together as brothers and sisters following the common God, our Father. We see also a dispensational transition from old covenant law keeping to new covenant grace covering. And you may say, well, that's kind of what we just talked about. Yeah, a little bit, but let me just explain this. This word dispensational in this usage uh, what it really means is that God is the same, but he works in different ways in different times in, in history. Uh, just because uh, God works in different ways in history does not mean he changes. He just changes in the way that he reveals himself to mankind and in the way that he deals with mankind. Uh, we saw in the Old Testament that man had to live by these laws and, and, and by these sacrifices and do all these things in order to hopefully please God. And yet, in the New Testament, it's in essence the same but the opposite. It's not about doing anything because Jesus has done it all. He has done everything that needs to be done for us to have complete a connection and unity with God the Father by giving his life for us. Now listen, uh, there's a lot of stuff being taught today and it's kind of picking up steam even in our area about people uh, um, pitting Jesus' teachings against Paul's teachings. They're saying, look, Jesus taught these things, Paul taught these things, and they are in contradiction to one another. Yes, sometimes they are. Why? What's the Bible students cheer? Man, I, we got to get some cheer coaches or something. That's, a, that's kind of a Bible student's death march. Context, context, context. But context, context. You should be excited about that. Context, context, context. Why does it appear that some of Jesus' teachings seem different than those that Paul taught throughout the New Testament? Very important reason. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus hadn't happened yet. Why, when people come to Jesus and say, hey, how do I, uh, you know, Rabbi, how do I go to heaven? Obey the law. Why did Jesus say obey the law? Because they were still living under Old Testament law. The resurrection, folks, the resurrection changes everything, everything. 
And so don't let people, uh, you know, there's this thing kind of going around saying, well, I, I trust Jesus more than Paul, so I'm going to reject what Paul wrote in the New Testament, and I'm going to follow what Jesus said. You want law? Knock yourself out. I got to tell you, when I look at the law and my dismal ability to fulfill it perfectly, and I see grace on the other side, I will take grace any day of the week and five times on Sunday. When it comes to law versus grace, I will take the undeserved merit that God gives me through his son, Jesus Christ, any day of the week over the law. So they weren't teaching something different. They were teaching in a different time, in a different dispensation. Hopefully that helps. But we see this, this transition happening over the course of the book of Acts. We also saw the constant testings and obedience in light of salvation. This is a cause and effect uh, situation. We do not be obedient to Christ in order to gain God's favor. If you are saying, listen, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to, I'm going to do what you want, Jesus, because I want you to like me. I want you to love me. So I'm going to, I'm going to do all these things so you love me. Folks, that's, that's contrary to the gospel. I love my grandchildren just because they're my grandchildren. They're not in here, right? They're gone? Okay. They don't have to obey me at all and I'll still love them. Right? Same way with your kids. You just love them because you love them. Listen, when we give our lives to Jesus, he loves us all we're ever going to get. He can't love us anymore. I can't love my kids and my grandkids any more than I already do. Now, I like it when they obey me. It puts a smile on my face when they obey me, but I don't love them anymore. I don't care about them anymore. Now, folks, we need to be obedient to Christ, not in order to get something from him, but because we have already gotten everything from him. He has saved me from my sinful self and from an eternity uh, just separated from him. I, I owe him obedience just because I love him and I love what he's done for me. Let's not get that cause and effect backwards. And we see it clearly here in the book of Acts. The last thing I want you to see is this. Paul models the spread of Christianity through evangelism, discipleship, and missions resulting in the planting of new churches. So we saw that Paul would go into every city, he would raise money, he would put up a building, he would put up a sign that says First Baptist Church of Paul, and people would flock to it, right? Wrong. He would go in, and what would he do? He would preach the gospel. In fact, he would go uh, usually to the temple, and he would preach day by day, every day of the week, he would preach in the temple the gospel to those Jews who would listen to him and then to the Gentiles after some of the Jews had rejected it. He would evangelize. He would share Christ with them. Then he would collect those that would, would follow Jesus, and he would begin discipling them. He would begin growing them up. We do things around here to evangelize people. We do things around here to disciple people, and then send them out on mission. Paul went out on mission, and he took people with him. You never see Paul going out on mission by himself. He always took a team with him. Why? Because he was discipling them. He was teaching them. He was, he was doing it with them. It was teamwork missions. Some of them went on to other teams. 
we see this strategy taking place. And what was the result of all that? New churches in every city. Every city, he, almost every city he went to, not all, but almost every city he went to, when people would believe Jesus, he would collect them, start discipling them, and they would begin to be a church. Folks, we need to continue to be involved in evangelism, discipleship, and missions. Those need to be the things that we are about so that we can also plant new churches. There are still 265 to 270,000 now people in Clay and Platt counties who do not profess to be believers in Jesus. That doesn't really even count those who profess it but don't really know him. And the number of churches is diminishing while more lost people are moving. We are losing the battle, folks. We have got to get busy evangelizing, discipling, and doing missions and planting new churches around us and around the world to continue the gospel being spread, to grow God's kingdom. This is not, all this stuff we just talked about, it is not about this kingdom. It's about the kingdom. Okay? If we ever get our sights just focused, now listen, we want to grow, okay, all that stuff, but if we ever get our sights just set on this this one expression of a local church, this kingdom, and off of the kingdom, God help us. God will not bless our efforts when it's all about us and not really about him. I hope looking and relooking at some of these principles will kind of sear them into your brain. Uh, all of the uh, sermons are on our website, uh, fogkc.com. You can go back and listen to any of them there. Um, but folks, I hope we can really get these things stuck in our heads so that they become principles we go back to. They become principles uh, and stay principles that our church was founded on and that our church is growing in. And we continue to see God's kingdom grow here and through us around the world. I want to see that. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful study over the last year and a half in the book of Acts. God, thank you for the things that have challenged us and encouraged us. I pray that you would uh, just continue to keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds open to your leading. God, help this church uh, just be a light to the community of Parkville and to Kansas City. Help us to be used by you to help plant churches around the world and help us just be a part of growing your kingdom. Father, we know that you have given us the responsibility to continue on the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.